You know, I think that the Tim Ferriss approach, the bookstore approach would be another example. See what people pick up and see what their reaction is. I mean, if yeah. they pick it up and they toss it back on the shelf and discuss, well, okay, that's one reaction. Yeah, yeah. If, you know, if, if they start thumbing through it and reading it, okay, then that's that's maybe a good reaction. Are you, you all ready to get schooled by Roger Dooley? Holy cow. Yeah. This I is know. gonna be, you're not ready? Well, No, I'm never ready. Never so ready. much. So much. <laughs> Well, get ready. But here, the first thing everyone's got to do, if you're listening in right now, make sure you rate and review this show and subscribe. We don't want you to miss an episode. We don't want you to miss this one. And uh, if you haven't listened to the prior ones too, binge time, baby, binge time. But uh, get ready for Roger Dooley. And uh, you can check out his website too, rogerdooley.com. He's the author of Friction. Honestly, it's one of my favorite books of all time when it comes to the business space. It's a must read. It's kind of like one of those uh, underrated books that, it sh- it's the popularity it should have is not matched to the sales volume. But I'll tell you, if you get it, you will be happy. So listen on in. So I got to tell you, legitimately, I think one of the best works in the concept of, um, it's not even persuasion, but in motivation, facilitating transformation for others is your book, Friction. I, I think it's one of the, the best books on the concept. So I, I do want to explore that. Um, but one thing I thought was interesting was when you were writing that book and you, you shared this, we're in that group together, write and rant, you were sharing some of the analysis you were doing to make the sales of your book friction, even free, more friction free, easier to do. Well, kind of, or at least to uh, tweak some little things. I mean, you know, Mike, as an author, especially with a traditional publisher, you've got very little control over how things happen. But I publishers, is it McGraw-Hill? Yes. Yeah. Uh, And uh, uh, as it turns out, they suck, at least from the standpoint of not having had an audible edition from July to the present date because they're doing some... Are you kidding me? No. Uh, And... I just I just interviewed another guy whose auto whose McGraw Hill book is coming out uh, right now about, and he says they said uh, we should have that resolved in probably a month or two, and it's like a real sense of urgency there, right? Uh, you know, unbelievable. It's unbelievable. No, what, why? So this is actually an interesting parallel. I, I want to go back to your book, but I want to talk about the 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 friction that that happens in these corporations. Why do they, why do the gears move so slowly or, 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 or why are they just frozen? Oh, for, you know, I can't actually explain that because I, there was actually a brief problem with my Wiley book as well. About the same time uh, it disappeared because apparently their original agreement had expired. And I think that's what happened with McGraw Hill too. They had both created agreements back in the day when audiobooks were kind of an afterthought. And now of course they can be a significant portion of sales volume. Yeah. And Wiley had the thing resolved in a couple of weeks or so. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, they, they, they had to do a new thing. They did their new thing and they did it. Uh, but I don't know what the deal is with McGraw-Hill. There just does not seem to be a sense of urgency there. It, it's and just crazy because, I mean, that's a substantial amount of income, at least for me, over well, 50%. Yeah. Oh, well, it's yeah. For, like at least on my, I don't have good stats. Wiley has no transparency on audible stats. So that's the downside there. Like I know exactly how many, uh, hardcovers and Kindles yeah. and other weird things I've sold. Audible is a black box. Uh, so 
Uh, one time I checked and she told me, and at that point I would say Audible was like maybe 25% of uh, volume, wow. maybe a little bit more, but uh, not, not much more than that. Wow. For, for me now, uh, Audible is about 51 to 52% of sales of any one of my books. Um, but l- l- let's go back. So Friction, uh, you in Write and Rant, you, you posted, I remember that just the testing of the colors. What, what are some things you did to uh, persuade and, and make the purchasing experience maybe friction-free for, for your clients or readers? Well, I think the... Uh, the, the thing that you're probably referring to is my uh, eye, tra- uh, eye tracking. It was eye tracking. That's right. That's right. The heat map it was. Yeah. And what, um, uh, what I try to do, I, first of all, I, I started with one assumption. I remembered reading about how Tim Ferriss took uh, a couple of sample book covers into Barnes & Noble or some bookstore like that, uh, set them on the front table, and then observed to see which people would pick up. Interesting. And... I really uh, couldn't, uh, you know, I mean, to me, that's great, but uh, my books are not really huge in Barnes and Noble. They're not going to be on the front table. It occurred to me that really the way most people are going to discover my books and actually for most business authors uh, is via Amazon, via the thumbnail and a book that looks great in person on the front table, or especially if it's like stacked up 20 high the way they do sometimes, that's, that's a totally different thing than how it might look in something that's the size of a postage stamp on a computer screen or on a mobile phone. So uh, I dummied up an Amazon lineup like you might see either in a sponsored listing or in a uh, you might also like or People also bought this. They have different ways of displaying these related titles. But mm-hmm. uh, so I dummied up something like that with kind of some other books from the category. Not, I didn't take any great care in picking them out other than to try and not pick everything that looked alike. Uh, and then I took uh, four versions of the cover we were working on, or I was working on with my publisher. They had a version that they liked, which I didn't really care for that much. Uh, I didn't feel it had like a really big impact in that thumbnail scale. So I changed some colors, did some stuff, and then did some eye tracking. Now, the interesting thing, Mike, is that you can do this eye tracking uh, very cheaply uh, online. I used a service, I think it's called Realize. I'm not sure about that, but I think it's something of that nature. Uh, And for, I think, under $100 or maybe a little over $100, uh, I got back some web panel testing where they have uh, people, uh, you know, they show people the screens uh, on their home computer or on their mobile device or whatever, and they give results. Now, this is not really high quality eye tracking, okay? If you okay. go into a big ad agency or a neuromarketing lab, they are going to have better eye tracking there. But I did that and I, that gave me some results. And I was showing these to a friend of mine and I was speaking at a conference and as was he. And he said, oh, well, we've actually got the real gear in our lab. Uh, let me run that same test. And <laughs> So he ran that same test and the results were far more precise. In other words, okay. more, uh, more precise. I mean, were they consistent with the other tests? Yes, but that, that's the thing. They were, they were mostly consistent with the other test. Uh, even though uh, when they saw, when you saw a hotspot there, it was like it was burned into the screen where with the uh, really cheap, it was more like a colored blob in the general area. Okay. So yeah, it was, it was more precise because they're using, I don't know, you know, 10 or 20 K, Kobe glasses instead of, uh, you know, somebody's webcam or mobile device. Yes. So, but, but in any case, you know, to me, that was one way 
of helping make that decision. Now, first of all, it's not perfect because that doesn't tell you whether people are going to actually click on that picture. Then it says they're going to see it. Maybe they're going to see it because it looks so ugly. Who knows? Uh, oh, I, I get it. So, so eye tracking, just so I'm clear in my head, simply tracks what they're exactly. Gazing at. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, you have to be really careful when you're using these tools to not over overly assume that the yeah. results are going to be great. And even then, even if it draws clicks, it doesn't tell you that when people see the cover in some larger size on the product page, that they're going to buy the book. Okay. Yeah. They are, uh, but it does tell you at least what's going to get people's attention. And for me, that's the purpose of the cover at Amazon by and large is to get people's attention yeah. Uh, so that they click on it, and then they can read about it, get the testimonials and the uh, you know the reviews, and learn more about it, and so on. They look at the star ratings, but up you know up to that point, really, you've got to get their attention. Now, something else that I did, which uh, is part of the sort of in-person experience, uh, was, and I, I worked with the publisher McGraw Hill on this, uh, and they were very good about that. They. Uh, did a oh, coating. I wanted a coating that suggested friction. And there are super gritty. I, what, I reviewed a book a few years back that actually felt like sandpaper in one part of it. Uh, and I asked the author later on, I said, wow, hey, this could be perfect for my next book. Where did you uh, get that? Or what is that? And he explained that it was a grit coating. But he said, you know, it wasn't that great. We got complaints from bookstores that our book was damaging books <laughs> next to it on the shelf. Oh, that's funny. So, so it was, oh, maybe that's too much. But uh, McGraw-Hill did put a uh, rather uh, bumpy matte cover on it. And I'd say about one in five people where I might hand them the book in person or experience, uh, see them pick up the book for the first time uh, in person. But one in five will say, ooh, friction. So, uh, you know, it, it has that effect. And maybe even on those that don't notice that it, it has a subliminal effect uh, that uh, they notice there's a little bit of friction on the cover. That's interesting. You said uh, that you, you, you want something to draw attraction, uh, attraction. It catches your attention by doing the eye tracking. Are there ways to analyze if that attraction actually converts or moves them on to the action you want, which I guess is clicking? Like you said something interesting. It could just be an ugly book cover and people are like, they gaze at because it's so ugly, but they're right, like, exactly. yeah, right. by it. Yeah. Uh, and the answers for, at least for Amazon testing, that's um, not, you can't really do that. Now, if you have the ability to uh, uh, run sponsored ads for that cover, of course, at that point, it's probably too late because the book's out and it's in their, in their store. Uh, you could probably gauge what sort of click through you're getting. Uh, but otherwise, you would have to run a really sort of a full conversion test where you would try and simulate that experience and see what people click on. I see. Uh, probably not worth it for anything other than like the next Stephen King book or something of that nature where you're going to sell, you know, millions of copies. Uh, you know, for a typical uh, nonfiction book uh, like we write, that next step would be pretty tricky. You know, I think that the Tim Ferriss approach, the bookstore approach would be another example. See what people pick up and see what their reaction is. I mean, if yeah. they pick it up and they toss it back on the shelf and discuss, well, okay, that's one reaction. Yeah, yeah. If, you know, if, if they start thumbing through it and reading it, okay, then that's, that's maybe a good reaction. So, you know, yeah. I think there's different ways of testing it, but that, uh, you know, I think it's, you've got to sort of go with what you can do uh, in a relatively economical fashion. 
And yeah. you, know, you can also test uh, titles that way. I did not happen to do this, but I've heard of authors doing this where they will uh, run, say, Google ads or Facebook ads with a title, uh, a title variation. Yes. See which title variation gets more clicks. In other words, if your title solves a problem for the potential buyer, you know, how do you phrase that problem to get uh, the most clicks? Because that's a good indicator then of what, uh, what people are responding to. I was, uh, I actually tested my title. So I got a book coming out, um, in September of this year, 2021. It's called different is better. It's a marketing book. And, uh, I fell in love with the subtitle. It was marketing greatness in three doable steps. I'm like, this is the one it, like, it's a big promise. The, but I had the wherewithal to at least test some other titles. And I put a, I can't remember the other two one, two were, but one was like very perfunctory is like, you know, how to market uh, effectively or something. And I ran a test doing the ad testing. Google also has a, um, now a testing platform, right? It's like a survey platform, mm-hmm. which goes to randomize people. The perfunctory um, subtitle one like hands down. I, I couldn't believe it. Um, and so my, my logic was behind this. Like, oh my gosh, it, it, when I say marketing greatness in three doable steps, A, maybe it sounds unrealistic. Secondly, like, what, what does marketing greatness even mean? It's, it's so ethereal that there's a lot of power in clear, concise communication. Right. Is that true? Oh, I think so. Uh, you know, to me, that is kind of a cognitive friction thing where uh, I, I call cognitive friction. If you make people think, if they have to think about something, uh, then you're starting to lose them right there because uh, people do not like to think. Okay, this yeah. is, uh, there's something called the law of least effort. And according to Daniel Kahneman, our Nobel Prize winner, that it applies to not just physical effort, uh, people don't like to do heavy work necessarily, uh, but it applies to cognitive effort. And if you make people think that they're probably less likely to do it, they're probably less likely to keep reading, for example, if for some reason they're having to sort out what you're trying to tell them. Uh, they're, uh, I think one of my favorite book titles of all time, speaking of book titles, uh, is Steve Krug's Don't Make Me Think, which yes. is all about user experience and web design uh, and about how if you want people to do stuff on your website, and that was originally written before mobile was a big thing, uh, if you want people to do stuff on your website, then uh, don't make them think. Don't put something where they're not going to expect it. You know, people have certain expectations, where they're going to see your logo, where they're going to look for to find out what your site is about, where the buy button is going to be. Uh, and if you've got a really clever designer that wants to be creative, uh, they are likely to violate those norms and end up making customers think like, okay, what do I do next? Now, you know, there are always circumstances where slowing people down to make them think uh, can have a positive effect uh, by uh, causing them to ponder, maybe make your message resonate a little more deeply if they have to puzzle it out and stuff. So, I mean, there's nothing that is 100% true all the time, but by and large, if you have to, uh, if people have to think, uh, they are going to like that less than if they don't have to think. You know, you said nothing's uh, true 100% of the time. And so I'm thinking when it comes to marketing, I guess my, my hope is I'll find this, the message that's hundred percent effective, but I guess there's a bell curve of how people respond. And, and I'm looking for the majority as opposed to the minority. Is that right? True? Yeah, well, definitely. And of course, yeah, some people are going to look at a 
red book cover and say, ah, I hate it, where, you know, maybe, right. you know, be neutral for others. And some people, wow, that's my favorite color. I love that book. Uh, you know, you, but uh, it's, it's also situational. So, for instance, generally, if you have a lower price, you're going to sell more stuff. On the other hand, if you're selling luxury goods, maybe not. Maybe raising mm. the price will help you sell more goods uh, if people think that, well, I can't really be good for that price. So, I mean, there, you know, there's exceptions to every rule. And, but you've got to kind of go with what's appropriate for your situation. And if in, if in doubt, sort of go with what usually works. If I'm going for, uh, if I'm testing a community that I'm trying to sell something to, to persuade in some, some degree, how do I know I've achieved statistical significance? Well, I mean, there are tools that will let you evaluate that and it's particularly true if you are running conversion tests. Most of the conversion software out there uh, in, will actually tell you, you can set some statistical limits. Uh, and for example, if you are, I mean, a typical conversion test might be, say, I'm going to change the main headline on this product page or on my website and see which one sells more or draws more clicks or more gets more leads. And so you would set that up in your software uh, and it would measure, okay, we've shown this headline this many thousand times, this other headline this many thousand times, this is the difference. And there, there, it will actually show you, in most cases, uh, a way that you could sh- calculate whether it's statistically significant. I came from the direct mail industry, and uh, our rule of thumb was you had to mail at least 5,000 pieces before your result was valid. And even then there were variations because if you were getting an extremely low response rate, uh, you would have to mail more pieces. If you were getting a tremendous response rate, you have to mail fewer pieces. And the, the math can get complicated, but there are definitely guides out there to do that. So as I was reading Friction, and I read it through multiple times, one of my favorite stories uh, or, or illustrations you use is a is taxi cabs. And uh, and this is, of course, me kind of trying to regurgitate it. But basically, the, the story as I read it is uh, there's a lot of friction that happens when trying to hail a taxi cab. You know, you're trying to wave someone down. They have to be in the right corner at the right time. There's a lot of kind of luck that plays in. Um, and therefore, taxi cabs aren't maximized. The, the use of taxi cabs aren't maximized. There's a lot of empty rides going and stuff like that. And, uh, and then I think you compared it to Uber or maybe it was Lyft, but basically these rideshare programs and how they reduce the friction so much. And uh, that's the argument for their success. So, well, Mike, yeah. you know, actually, taxis, I always considered to be a big effort saver you know, for most of my life. Like if I went to New York City, you know, I could uh, uh, go down on the subway and take a subway, which sometimes worked pretty well if you had to go a particular distance that was served by subway routes. Uh, but, you know, taking a bus or something, that's pretty effortful. A walking 20 yeah. blocks is effortful, especially yeah. if it's raining. If you could hail a cab uh, and do it, wow, that was great. That was a that was a bonus. It was typically the problem was it was just too expensive uh, to yeah. do, and uh, you would take one of these other options. You'd sort of trade your time and effort uh, for a little bit of money. But then Uber came along and they showed you uh, how many friction points there were in that taxi process. You know, just just imagine you've called a taxi for the uh, air, for an airport ride. You've got a speaking gig uh, later yeah. that day and you know you got to get to the airport. It's already three minutes past the arrival time. Now you're wondering, huh, did they forget about me? Is he right around the corner? He's going to appear? Uh, and they, you know, there's tremendous uh, stress there. Where Uber, you can see where your ride is. If you don't see a ride, then you better 
check it out because, uh, you know, you, uh, they give you the map that shows you exactly where your ride is. Okay, he's only one minute out, so we're, everything's fine. Uh, the whole process of telling him where you want to go. Uh, I remember one time I uh, went, uh, I was in the Southern California uh, and got taken to the wrong uh, Marriott Hotel simply because of a failure in communication with a driver who uh, maybe his English wasn't top notch, uh, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and, and you know, it, it, things like that. You have got to explain, you waste time there too. Oh, you know, it's, and then of course, payment is always one of the biggest things. I remember not so much now, uh, but especially in Europe and even someplace in Europe, I think this is still true. Not all cabs take credit cards. So you're you've got this group of cabs, you're going down the line asking, you take credit cards, you take credit cards. And then finally you get one, and get to the end of your ride, and he's got to fish this machine out uh, from under the seat and connect to the internet and run your card. You know, Uber is so simple. You just get out and say goodbye, thank you. And, yeah. you know, they made, took so much effort out of the process. Now, if I have to take a taxi, it seems like it's really effortful. So does, does the consumer behavior shift to the most friction-free environment? Is that the natural tendency of consumer behavior? In general, consumers do, yes. And Gartner uh, did some, uh, the big market research company, uh, did some really cool research. They they looked in particular at customer service interactions, like when you have to call in for a return, for tech support, for some kind of interaction with a brand's customer service. And uh, what they found was pretty amazing. Customers who had uh, a high effort interaction were 94% likely to say they would be disloyal to that brand, that they would shop around next time. And that's about 10 times as high as people who had a low effort experience. Uh, on the other hand, about uh, 90% of the l- low effort customers said they'd buy again. Uh, and that's compared to just 4% of the high effort customers. And the crazy thing is when you know we, we talk about how important word of mouth is these days. People want reviews. They want ratings. They're going to go to Yelp. What are other people saying about this? I don't want to risk my money or my time on this unless mm-hmm. I know what everybody else thinks. Uh, 88% of the high effort customers said they would say bad things about the brand compared to just 1% of low effort customers. So uh, the impact on customer behavior from what they see as extra effort is huge. And you know what's even scarier, Mike? It's not, there's not an absolute level of effort. You can say, well, okay, we've checked our customer experience against these other standards and we seem to have pretty good effort. People are comparing you, not to your direct competitors, they're comparing you to whatever they think is a low effort experience. So they are comparing you to Uber, to Amazon, to Zoom, whatever they think is really easy and effortless. So it's, it's a high bar that they're setting but it does impact their behavior in a big way. I just want to make sure I'm clear about this. Am I an author and the experience maybe purchasing a book from me is compared to a transaction with Uber? Are people looking across industries or are they only comparing me to my competitors? No, they, uh, they are comparing you across industries. Now, now, clearly when you've got really different experiences, uh, then there may not be such a direct comparison, but uh, if, if they see that they've got to enter more data in for whatever they want to do with you, then they have to with somebody else. If your forms aren't set up to autocomplete properly and they've got to type in their address or type in other stuff, okay, that's going to seem effortful to them, especially if they're on a mobile device where it's a little bit harder to type. Uh, 
uh, you know, they, they're just comparing you to everything else. I just went through a, a couple of uh, attempted transactions with a huge financial brand. Uh, and it was a relatively straightforward thing that I wanted to do. So I go to their website. I could not complete that action on their website. What I had to do was download a form, fill it out, mm-hmm. and then fax it or mail it by traditional postal mail where you put an envelope and put a stamp on it and address it and stuff. I mean, who does that these days? And then one, one of the transactions got kicked back because there was apparently something wrong with my form. I don't know what it was, but they resent me a form in the mail and again, told me to complete whatever I had to, whatever I missed the first time, and then mail it back to them. There was no option to correct it online. Uh, and amazingly, my, I got it back for the second time because apparently my signature the second time around was sufficiently different than the original signature that I put on there. I don't know how, I don't know how many years ago that now they want me to either uh, take it to a notary public and verify that it's me or do something or I don't know, maybe sign it again in a way if I can imagine however I signed it the first time. I mean, this is absolutely ridiculous. You know, I would never deal with this brand again because they have not figured out how to conduct transactions in a digital age. You know, if you talk about digital transformation, they are back in the caveman days, apparently. Yeah. But, but you can't leave them either because they got your money. There's so much friction in leaving, like trying to transfer banks. I stayed with my cable company, Cablevision, who I hate because of all the, we consistently have problems. Customer service is horrific. You know, your call is important to us. Wait five hours. But leaving them is even more painful than bearing and grinning, you know, grinning and bearing through the problems that I'm having now. Well, Uh, I I use cable companies uh, in a lot of my speeches and workshops, Mike, just for that reason. And this uh, actually borders on, doesn't border on it. It is what uh, some user experience experts call a dark pattern where you manipulate behavior uh, with the tools of behavioral science, one of which is adding friction to produce the outcome, uh, an outcome that is good for the company, but not necessarily good for the customer. And so they, uh, Richard Thaler, Nobel Prize winner, says that, has a nice little quote, he says, never underestimate the power of inertia, okay? Uh, And, you know, that's a good thing, if you are putting money into your retirement plan, which is where a lot of his research and uh, real world experience is focused, getting people both to enroll in company retirement plans, which in the US isn't a forced thing, you can choose to or choose not to, uh, using behavioral nudges in a very ethical way. It's transparent, there's no coercion, but by using a few behavioral nudges, uh, he was able to increase enrollment and also then uh, reduce the propensity to take money out or de-enroll in the plan. But, uh, and that's partly due to inertia. Once you're in the retirement plan and your money's coming out of your daily, your weekly paycheck, then you're probably not going to pull out of it. Uh, you'd have to fill out forms, kind of a hard work. But when your cable company, your internet service provider, your satellite company uh, does that to you, then uh, it really becomes a dark pattern where in order to, uh, first of all, they count on the inertia. They give you a really cheap plan up front. Right, right. Uh, and we're going to throw in Showtime. We're going to throw in HBO. We're going to throw in this. We're going to throw in that. Yep. Uh, oh, that's great. That's great. Okay, sounds good. Uh, because they know that some portion of the customers 
will just completely forget about the fact that these are 90-day offers or 60-day offers or 12-month offers uh, and will uh, expire and then things will revert to the higher price. Or even if they do, maybe it'll take two or three bills or four bills before somebody even notices. It's going on in their credit card. You know, they're not really paying that close attention to their statements. Still somebody, whoa, look at our cable bill. What's up with that? Mm-hmm. And at that point, uh, then they have to call in and they deal with the first level of support who can't really help them that you go to a retention specialist. Uh, and all this can be very time consuming where they're asking you all kinds of questions and uh, getting information from you and verifying your identity and uh, way beyond what's actually required. And then, you know, they try and talk you out, do everything they can to talk you out of it. Uh, and this is a, a lengthy process that typically I found takes probably 20 or 30 minutes. And that's if things are going relatively well. Uh, and then you can renegotiate that price and get the lower price. But you know that then again, in three months or six months or 12 months, you're going to have to go through that same process again. Yep. And uh, in fact, just literally like several days ago, uh, I did what many other consumers have done. And I cut my, well, it's a kind of a, an imaginary cord uh, to my satellite provider uh, because they were making me do this every a few months practically. You know, there was always some expiring offer. You'd have to either cancel or you'd have to renegotiate. And I decided that was just too much friction, too much effort to keep dealing with these people. Uh, And it wasn't that the people were bad, but they they were constrained by the practices of the company and of the brand. So uh, right now in my foyer in my house, I have a pile of uh, remotes and cable boxes and such that I'm waiting for instructions on what to do with. Uh, and I've eliminated all that uh, uh, by cutting the cord, getting my services over the internet. Uh, the remotes all had a million buttons on them. Uh, these really, you know, half, what half the buttons are, who knows. Uh, gotten rid of those, got a simple Amazon Fire Stick. It's got about six uh, buttons on it, very easy to figure out. Uh, no, uh, you know, no cognitive friction there. And uh, it's, it's such a better system. And unfortunately, you know, these companies are adopting what, what we're seeing, though, is I think the mobile industry used to operate that way, but new players in the mobile industry are changing that. So now uh, you've got uh, players like Google Fi came in where one simple monthly bill, the, you pay uh, 10 bucks a gig for Internet, whether you are sitting at home. Well, of course, if, you, if you're not connected to Wi-Fi, but if you're in your uh, home area or if you are in Paris or Bangladesh or any place else, you're paying 10 bucks a gig for internet. No yeah. uh, setting up uh, international service, no surprises where, oh, your initial deal expired, now your rates are going up, uh, no weird charges for other stuff that uh, you don't know what they are. Uh, and this has kind of forced many of the wireless companies, I think, into better customer experience where they can't keep gaming things with uh, you know, free phone offers and uh, protection plans and other stuff that really inflate your bill. And of course, uh, overcharges and uh, you've exceeded your limit. Now you're going to hit this and that. That's pretty much what did in Blockbuster. You know, it was not even so much their delivery process, which of course eventually became antiquated. Uh, but the fact that they were largely profitable because of return over because of late return fees not because people are running movies. And that created a lot of friction with customers where you go in and, oh, uh, yeah, that um, $3 movie that you rent is going to be $20 now. Right. Uh, needless to say, uh, uh, you know, Netflix had a simple model. Yeah, keep it as long as you want. Give, when, bring it back and we'll give you a new one. 
Right. Uh, you know, and it, that made it so much simpler. And of course, streaming took you know, all the transportation friction out of the process too. So is that the entrepreneurial opportunity for, for us? Meaning, do we look at our industry and say, where's the friction points? What slows people down? Uh, you know, you paraphrased uh, Steve Krug's, you know, don't make me think. Um, do we just look for friction points? And if we can uh, lather that up and make it super smooth and easy, by default, do we win the entrepreneurial game? Do we, do we, do we have a massive competitive advantage? Well, I think you have a huge competitive advantage. Clearly, uh, your product or your service is still really important. You know, if you've got a bad product or bad service uh, compared to your competition, uh, making things a little bit easier will help, but it probably won't be the only answer to your problem. But in markets where the products and services tend to be fairly similar, where the offerings don't vary that much in, in quantity uh, or even in price, that's where you can really gain an advantage by making things easier. When people have that simple experience, uh, not only do uh, they say, wow, I'm going to keep doing this because that was really simple, but uh, they are likely to tell their friends that when their friend says, hey, I need this kind of product, I need this kind of service, they're much more likely to say, hey, hey this is where I got it, super simple, no mm-hmm. sweat, no problem. So I think it is a huge competitive advantage. Uh, and certainly if you have incumbent competitors who have bad processes uh, for their customers, you know, where, where we're seeing this play out right now, not necessarily the entrepreneurial uh, scale of things, uh, or at least the smaller scale entrepreneurs, but uh, in the fintech world where you've got these traditional banks uh, and then all these nimble digital first uh, competitors that in many cases uh, are rapidly grabbing market share from the traditional firms. Now, there are a few traditional firms that have really invested in their digital transformation, and they are matching the fintech firms uh, to keep things really simple, really easy, but there are others that are just slow to change. Uh, yeah. My friend yeah. Peter Ramsey in the UK looked at uh, different uh, firms and found that the number of clicks to set up an account, just to set up, a, to open an account, uh, varied, and he tested 12 different brands, believe it or not, did uh, not only set up accounts, but did all kinds of transactions on them and documented every step. 24 clicks at the best, 120 clicks at the worst. So, I mean, clicks aren't the only metric, but if you've got five times as many clicks as your best competitor, there's probably more effort in your process. And you know, how long it took to use the account, multiple banks, and not just the fintech firms, but a couple of banks, uh, were able to use their account fully in two or three days. The worst bank, which was an old line bank, uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, took something like 36 business days. Oh uh, and, you know, that's like a uh, crazy amount of time. I'm sure many people would get partway through that process and say, eh, I'm just going to open an account someplace else. I need, to, I need to deposit that check that I got or whatever they wanted to do, uh, the reason for which they opened the account in the first place. Right. So, right. uh, you know, I think there, that's one uh, place where we actively see disruption happening, uh, where uh, banks that are not really adapting quickly are getting, uh, not just losing market share, but getting disrupted by some of these more nimble firms. How do we find friction in our industry? Like, you know, you and I are authors. How, how do I know where the friction points are? It's hard to see the forest from the trees. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, there, there are... Uh, Explain what you mean, Mike. Well, so I'm just trying to think there's, there's a lot of friction in all parts of the office. Yeah, so process. so I, I want to pursue the entrepreneurial opportunity here. If if uh, if I look at taxi cabs, this is pre Uber. Um, because I'm a consumer of it, 
it's, it's actually the best option. It's just a little bit pricey. So my default thinking is, oh, maybe if the price was cheaper, but that that's not doable. But then these Uber guys come out and they reinvent the whole industry. I'm, I'm just wondering for anyone listening in for their specific industry, how can they evaluate the industry standard and then where the opportunities are to reduce the friction? Where are the friction yeah. points? Right. Well, you know, I think uh, one company that has done that is Amazon already. Totally. They, they looked at uh, all the friction involved in getting a book published, which was going through uh, the traditional publisher, which is, uh, you know, incredibly uh, difficult because, uh, at least for first-time authors, you know, you, well, you're, you're well familiar with the obstacles that they face where, you know, you're, uh, if you don't have an agent, you first have got to find an agent. If you have a book idea, a proposal, a manuscript goes into a slush pile where, you know, maybe it'll get read, maybe not. Uh, and only a few get selected. Uh, and it's an arbitrary process because we all heard the story about how uh, J.K. Rowling uh, had Harry Potter rejected 26 times yes. before finally Scholastic, who was not even that kind of publisher, took a chance on her. Uh, so they, they, don't, they don't really know what they're doing, but it's still an arduous process. But uh, uh, even then, you could publish the book yourself, but that would mean finding a printer and learning about yeah. how, to, how to do the typesetting and all that. Uh, you could find a vanity publisher, but that's really expensive. And Amazon said, wow, there, is a, there are a lot of people who would like to publish a book. Uh, and they provided pretty simple tools to do that. And not, only, not just the tools, but the process. Just do these things, uh, you know, put your stuff in here, and we will produce a book for you. Uh, it will be a, you can do it in paper, you can do it electronically, you can mm -hmm. do it uh, off, you know, when audible. And they made that simple. And guess what? Now we've got all kinds of authors out there who are publishing books. So, you know, that's, uh, I think that this, this was an area that had a lot of friction. Are there still friction points? I would guess that there are. Uh, you know, Amazon is not good at getting your book into bookstores. Uh, in fact, I don't know if it's still true, but uh, I know that in the past, uh, if you had a book published directly by Amazon, uh, that you could not get it into, say, Barnes & Noble. They were boycotting Amazon. And for a while, uh, even, I mean, this is like totally self-defeating friction, but uh, if you used uh, Barnes & Noble's publishing arm, they have, they have a publishing arm too, uh, called Sterling, I think it is. Mm -hmm. uh, they would not release your book as an, Am as an Amazon Kindle title because they hate Amazon. Where yeah. from an author's standpoint, like Kindle has like 75% or more right. of the market share for eBooks. Why would you go with a publisher that would not release your book on the most popular platform? Now, I may, they may have changed that. That was a couple of years ago. But I, I talked to an author who is actually uh, in that situation where his title was not out uh, available in Kindle format. Oh my God. Gosh. And I'm thinking from the other perspective, as authors, you and I, um, one uh, area where I think readers struggle, at least with my books, is they they may read the book. And I, I would say, this is just my guess. Out of the people who buy the book, 80%, I think, shelf it and maybe never read it. So now, now I have 20% of those readers. And of those 20%, 80% won't get past the first chapter or two. So now I got 4% who actually read the entirety of the book that ever purchased in the first place. Now those 4%, maybe only 20% will execute. So now I'm down to, you know, whatever that number is, 0.8 or something. But my question is, if I'm having that much attrition of readership and the effect on readers, 
how do I identify maybe in the book itself areas where, oh, here's a friction point. This is why people are abandoning the book. Are are there ways I can investigate it? And maybe it's more theory and there's not practical examinations I can do, but are there ways to observe what we're selling and, and, and identifying the friction points in that? Yeah, I, I think that, again, comes back to that uh, cognitive friction. And yeah. uh, the design of the book uh, can make it easier if you've got a lot of subheads, if you've got a lot of illustrations, uh, if you've got uh, uh, call-outs, uh, sidebars and such uh, for important information. Uh, all of that is sort of a uh, sort of a friction reducer. It enables people to find the important stuff and keep going more quickly. Mm. And if they were reading uh, paragraphs and paragraphs of dense text, uh, one brand that has done a pretty good job of this uh, are the Dummies books. Uh, yes. That's a, a Wiley brand. And they do a lot of, I mean, it doesn't matter if it is, uh, you know, a crochet for dummies or uh, C programming for dummies or anything else. Yes. Uh, they all follow a very similar format and style. They use uh, uh, very similar tools. One of the weird things is, uh, maybe not weird, but uh, I found it annoying, but I can see why they do it. Uh, They do not have any footnotes in their books. So uh, there is a a really good book about neuromarketing by Steve Jenko, Neuromarketing for Dummies. And uh, there's a lot of good info in there. But it kind of drove me crazy that because the publisher didn't allow it, you couldn't dig in deeper. So you found an interesting study says, you know, study shows this, uh, what you want to do is find that study and learn yeah. more about it. But they consciously make that decision. Yeah. They know that, uh, probably, you know, 5% of the readers are like me who say, wow, man, I love those footnotes. I'm really going to dig in, not to every right. footnote, but if, if you read a book, you might find three or four things you want to follow up on in more depth. And they, they know that that will annoy the small minority of people, but for everybody else, uh, those footnotes make, uh, make the book seem more academic and a little bit denser. So they, they don't have them. Don't allow them. Can't do it. That puts a nice bow tie in our conversation. It goes back to the serve the majority, remove the friction from there. I want to invite every one of our readers right now, go on Amazon. It's the simplest, easiest thing to do. Type in friction, Roger Dooley, get a copy of that book. It will reward you. And if you execute on it, my gosh, the change you can have in your business, maybe transform an industry too. Roger, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you, Mike. Uh, One-click ordering is definitely a key to lowering friction. And uh, Amazon's been doing that forever. So it's it's been great chatting. And uh, I'm going to have to clear out of the Oval Office here pretty soon. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 Melania is uh, wanting to get in here. She's got a little more packing to do. Well, maybe she should stay for a few minutes then, just chat. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, Roger. Yeah, we'll see you, Mike. Okay, so that was uh, Sir Roger Dooley. And um, we should so make him a lord of this show. Yeah, yeah on so many times. I'm curious, Amy, what did you think about that interview with Roger? Holy cow, I'm so overwhelmed and so impressed with how he's like the king of stats and studies. And he's like, just he pulls out like these numbers and these figures and these, these. Oh my gosh. Oh, he's referenced a oh, Nobel Prize winner. So he references all of his stuff as he's talking. <laughs> well, it's impressive. It's it really impressive. is. It is impressive. Um, I loved the, you guys were talking about the impact of friction on, um, oh, what was it? On customer reviews. 
um, I just thought that was really interesting. And he was talking about dark patterns and creating inertia and things like that. It was all really interesting. The dark patterns kind of shows a little bit of the evil side where yeah. a cable company will use friction intentionally. I didn't realize how intentional that was. Yeah. And Blockbuster? Sucks. What? And Blockbuster? Yeah. What fools? What fools? What fools? Oh, you know, we're getting all those collections, those fees. There's a lot of companies that use friction nowadays and it's so, so annoying. And it angers me to the point where if, if they push it too far, I'm just like, I'm never going to use your business deal. ever yeah. again. It's a deal. It's a deal breaker. Honestly, it's awful. So I had to call cable vision. That's my cable provider because the bill it's was optimum now. Oh, stop. They changed company. Maybe that's your problem. They changed name. Yeah, I'm calling Cablevision. They're like, no one works here. I'm like, that's friction. <laughs> They're like, sir, we're closed. I'm like, <laughs> no wonder. So I called now Optimum. And um, because the the TV subscription is so expensive. So I just wanted to cancel. And I just want to get bare um, minimal internet. That's all I needed. And it must have been a one hour call, honestly of whole times, someone saying, oh, you know, on their side, just, just trying to lay, oh, there's always packages. We can throw in this package. You can watch HBO. Like, just cancel it. Um, and I, I just thought they were poorly educated in service, but they're really actually well-educated in causing friction mm -hmm. so that you just hang up the phone and give up. Like, that's their goal is for you to give up. Yeah, before uh, you actually have the contract canceled and they can still bill you, so. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, really disgusting. And, and the funny thing was, I have to do it again this year. Like this, the second the prices go back to their normal rates, mm -hmm. I have to go through the whole stupid thing again. Yeah. I got a, I got a call from my gym before I canceled. I think I mentioned it before and they were giving me uh, like all, all these issues and everything could be done by phone, right? They want to charge me done by phone. Uh, I need to add something to my plan done by phone. But then as soon as you go to cancel, um, well, sir, you're going to have to mail in a yeah, letter no. and I'm like, no. mail, like <laughs> what? Like, and she was like, yeah. go to this address and then pull out this form and then print the form and then mail it to our oh. office. And yeah. I was like, yeah. just out of spite, I will never, ever go to your gym ever again, because that is ridiculous that you make people do that. I feel like a lot of gyms must do that. Was it LA Fitness? Yes. Okay, so maybe it's just LA Fitness because yeah, I stayed a member for way too long for that reason. No, it's so not. I was like, oh, I just gotta fill out that thing and send it in. Yeah, it's not just them. There's another one. Sorry, Amy, I mean, cut you off. No, no. Um, but there's um, Anytime Fitness as well. Sorry, I'm gonna bash you guys too. They're even <laughs> worse because they um, they only will let you cancel if you're moving to an area that's out of the uh, within 30 miles of one of their yeah, gyms or something. What? And so you have to try and get proof of that. Otherwise no. it's in the, it's like the contractual. Yeah. It's a, yeah. it's a nightmare. It's an absolute nightmare. We had a local gym That's do that crazy. too, but I feel so naive because I honestly thought these companies just had inept, you know, yeah. um, operating procedures. Like I thought they had, they just didn't write out their operations procedures while they were poorly run. And now I'm like, Oh no, this is, this is how it was supposed to be. This is how yeah. this is all like intended. It's crazy. It feels very nefarious. Very yeah, exactly. dastardly. Super yeah. shysty. Yeah. 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 Don't like it. I like the Roger show the other side, the opportunity for us to give a friction free or friction less experience. For example, um, he talked about Uber and how prior to that I said, Oh, tax cabs are full of friction. He's like, yeah, but no one knew it. Yeah. 
And so exactly. then in comes a company that reinvents an industry. I think that's the opportunity. And I'll tell you, when it comes to these gyms, someone could reinvent it. Mm-hmm. All this friction here, and it's not just on the exit from contracts where they're trying to extract money from you. There's other uh, elements of friction. And the, the company that endeavors to fix that, it makes it friction-free, could reinvent an industry. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's true. I, I also, I, thought, I also like the eye tracking stuff he was talking about. I just found that it was fascinating. Cool. Yeah, I wrote yes. that down too. I want to look into that. So I'm reading a book about the rise of China in artificial intelligence. Um, and one thing that's interesting is the American entrepreneur, according to this book, using eye tracking software, would design a website and see that the American um, hangs on the left top corner most of the time. And that's the best spot to put something. And then kind of skims across to the right. And they were applying the same thing to the Chinese consumer. The Chinese consumer, particularly early on, actually was, they said it was almost like confetti. It was like all over the place. There was no single spot. Hmm. And what they found was that for the Chinese, um, the consumer behavior was kind of like shopping at a mall. You look around, you, you, you sample everything, and then you find what fits. But the American mindset was you pick the one thing you want, and then you go deep in it. And that frustrated the Chinese consumer. So Google and uh, eBay and these other platforms that are trying to go in all were using kind of the frame of the American mindset where the Chinese competitors, Alibaba is one of them, said, no, no, you got to cater to this desire to sample everything. And yeah, I hate that. The eye tracking. <laughs> so you hate that? Yeah, I hate when I go so into like some of those Chinese so where it's like they have like a, a box of, of icons. So it's like you have to kind of go um, all around to try to... Yeah find what you're looking for as opposed to like just streaming down designed ah. for the Chinese consumer. And it was all based upon eye tracking software. But the funny thing is in this book, they argued that the Americans said, well, they'll come to see it the right way. No, like that's the mistake. So yeah. I think there's a lot of value in using tools like that to, but being integral, not letting our bias plan say, well, just because the data shows one thing doesn't mean it's true. Mm-hmm. It could be true. Do you know what's really interesting though is so you're talking about, the companies that purposefully add friction and then having friction lists. But then there's also situations where it's a combination of both, right? Yeah. So uh, on social media, there never used to be this infinity scroll. And now there's this infinity scroll. You can scroll forever and it never stops. And the reason why they invented it is because it's less friction. You don't have to refresh the page. There's never a stop for it, but it Mm. sucks you in and keeps you there just scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. Mm. So it's like dastardly. <laughs> oh yeah. They, they lean into our, our behaviors. I like, um, I was just gonna say, I like what he said about um, if you make people think you have lost them. Right. So like everything should have like a low cognitive effort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I actually, I wanted to get that guy, uh, Steve Krug, I think his name is of don't make me think on our podcast. He responded. He just doesn't have some availability, but I thought that'd be cool to explore deeper into that concept. Um, we're going to do trivia, but before we do that, I just want to remind you, my friends, why don't you subscribe right now to our show? Hopefully it'll make it more frictionless for you by subscribing. You'll never miss an episode. You'll get insights on improving your business and, uh, it's free. So please do that now. And we'd love to get your rating and review. That really helps us. All right, Jay Sloan, you want to throw a little trivia our way? Yeah. I just want to add, um, you can now go to ratethispodcast.com slash M U I Y B and give us a rating there. Uh, it's a link that has, uh, it's the easiest way to do it. So if you can do that for us, that'd be amazing. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Mike, right. up in your business. Yes. 
Mweebs. 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 So we're calling listeners Mweebs. Mweebs. All right. That's. Oh, was that guy, Amy? No, nothing. Go ahead. All right. <laughs> um, so, uh, what causes friction, guys? Oh, man. I feel like this is like third grade. Science. So many things can <laughs> cause Come on. Friction. No, this is so easy. What causes friction? Well, you're friction? causing friction right now. No, what is the source? This is part of the trivia. What causes like friction? open ended. I want to know. No, we got multiple choice. We do multiple choice only tests here, Jeremy. Gravity causes friction. Yes, right. I was going to say that. Friction? Yes. Oh, Kelsey, sure. Now she jumps in with I was going to say that. So well, isn't friction contingent upon the, yeah. the surface? That's I thought it's impurities in the surface. The more impure or rough a surface is, the more friction it causes. Friction. Well, and if you have a surface that is impervious, does not porous whatsoever, that, that could be friction-free. But if you had zero um, gravity, you would have zero friction. Yeah. Then everything just flows. But yeah. what if you force, there's no friction, but what if you're forcing two things together, like a vice clamp, like you use a vice clamp in a gravitation, mm. that'll be friction, won't it? If you're forcing two things together, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, but I mean on earth, right? Gravity is uh, the cause of friction. I'm not buying it. I'll buy, <laughs> I'll buy 50%. I'll buy 50%. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, we're segueing into a gravity quiz. Okay. I hope you do awful on this, Mike. Oh, last time I said last week, I'm like, I got a hundred percent. I got zero. <laughs> All right. So question number one, how much gravity an object has depends on its blank. Is it weight, speed, mass, or momentum? Bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. All right. Question two, when will get, when will gravity, when will gravity be the strongest, the further away you are from an object, the closer you are to an object, or the faster your relative speed to an object. Wait, did you say when would gravity be the strongest? Yes, when will gravity be the strongest, yep. If you've seen Interstellar, that's a clue right we'll there. We'll notice. Yeah. Have you not seen that movie? No. It's a great movie. You should watch it. It's a really good movie. Can you say the, the answers again? I'm yeah. sorry. Uh, when will gravity be the strongest? The further away you are from an object, the closer you are to an object, or the faster your speed is to an object? Let me know when you got it, Kelsey. We'll go to number three. I don't ever got it. <laughs> <laughs> no, never got it. All right. Number okay. three. What natural phenomena occurs on Earth due to the gravity of the moon? Is it earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, hurricanes, or none of the above? Wait, ask the question one more time, Jeremy. Yeah. So what natural phenomena occurs on Earth due to the gravity of the moon? Is it earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, hurricanes, or none of the above? Everyone was waiting for title change. Everyone's like, oh, it's the I, was, I was waiting for all of the above and I got none of the above. And now I'm all confused. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gosh. You ever see that show, Are You Smarter Than a Third Grader? Or yeah. Something? That's what this show feels like. That's what I this know. Feels it's like. so disheartening. No, yeah, I'm not like, smarter I'm, I'm than I know <laughs> Have any of you seen Interstellar? 
You already asked that question? No, I was asking you. Nobody else saw it, really? Is that the one with the couple up in space and they're left alone on the spaceship? They wake up too soon on the spaceship? It's Matthew McConaughey and, um, uh, uh, oh, what's her name? She's an award-winning actress. Anyway. That narrows it down. (laughs) Okay, it's not the one I was thinking of. Never mind. It's a great movie. Um, Okay. How much gravity an object has depends on its blank. Is it weight, speed, momentum, or mass? Mass. Said weight. It is mass, yes. Damn it, I put mass and I changed it. (laughs) Nice. I don't think I got any of these right. I'm just going to say it. I don't think I got the next two right, that's for sure. You need to go back to fourth grade science class. So so the, the the gravity of... The sun is so much stronger because it's so much larger than the earth. It's like 260 times larger than the earth, I think, or something like that. Um, Okay. When will gravity be the strongest? The further away you are from an object, the closer you are to an object, or the faster your speed is to an object? Closer. I don't understand this question at all. (laughs) I don't either. I went with (laughs) third option. Yeah. And I'll go with farther just to be different. It's closer. So, uh, so, so imagine, um, so like the space station is in low earth orbit, right? So it's slowly, slowly descending. But if then that, that hit the atmosphere, then it would get, then it would, gravity would like pull it, pull um, it in, you know? So the right. closer you are, the stronger the pull is. is that like, what like for example, a black hole. Exactly. Nothing, exactly. Nothing can escape it, but it's not affecting us. There's a, maybe a slight pull on us, but it barely affecting us. But if we got closer to it, you get pulled in faster. There you go. Very good, Mike. You know you're. you're I know my black holes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that sounds horrible. That sounds. What's what's wrong. the? Do you know? Do you know the point of where the black hole starts? The name of what it's called? Well, it's a star, and it's a collapsed star. No, but like where you cross over to where light can no longer escape. Oh, where even light is in. Uh, what that's called? Uh, I don't know. The event, what's it called? event horizon. Ah. Event horizon. Okay. Yeah, it actually starts bending light into it. That's, yeah, that's yeah. Pretty amazing. See, you gotta watch the movie, guys. Come on. All right. This isn't all based on the movie. This is just space <laughs> stuff. They just do a really good job in that movie. Um, all right. What phenomena occurs on Earth due to the gravity of the moon? Is it earthquakes, hurricanes, volcanic eruptions, or none of the above? I none of the above. I say none of the above. All right. You guys are right. It's none of the above. Noise. It's tidal waves. Tidal. I said hurricanes. Damn it. Too right. I thought, yeah, I know the tides are shifted. Tides themselves are changed by the moon. Yeah, it, it controls the um, high tide and low tide, which is pretty wild. And I was thinking, if the tides were affected, then you know, underground pressure is affected, and therefore you might have volcanoes. And that's what I thought. I'm with you, madam. madam. Yeah, I don't know Mad- if I Madam Butterfly. Yeah. Yes, it's the Madam Butterfly effect. I don't know if I mentioned that movie Interstellar to you guys, but um, <laughs> wait, have you guys seen that movie Interstellar? <laughs> I think you would get it better now. There is, you there, guys- there's a scene where they land on this planet with super strong gravity, and this this wave that's just like, I mean, it's the size of a mountain, uh, is like coming for them because the gravity's so strong that the waves are just um, like huge. It's crazy. It's crazy. Do they escape? Now I need to know. Well, it's, you got to watch the movie. I'm not going to give it. A, I'm not going to give it away. I'm not going to give it away. Ninety-nine. Armageddon. The guy dies, so don't say that much. Yeah. Yeah. The the main 
protagonists always make it through. Not so maybe that's how the movie ends. Since, how do I know that's not how the movie ends? He doesn't say what movies, point They follow the same script most <sighs> often. Since Mike has never watched a movie, he thinks that everybody lives in every movie. <laughs> <laughs> two protagonists, one could die. Usually die. One could die. One could, one could yeah. die. Yeah. Usually everyone makes it. Hmm. Do you know what's cool? Well, I, this was Titanic. Then you have both protagonists. We have one protagonist. Didn't Pearl Harbor, one of them died too? No one yeah. died Pearl Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. Yeah, one of the main characters died in Pearl Harbor. That's conspiracy. You're a conspiracy theorist. No one died in Pearl Harbor. Josh Hartnett died, right? Yeah. Yeah, he was a heartthrob. I like that dude. <laughs> yeah, what happened to him? I don't know. Disappeared. He was an in interstellar. <laughs> I know he watched that movie, so. <laughs> yeah. um, All right, we better get out of here. Um, you, my listening friends, make sure you check out Roger Dooley's site. So rogerdooley.com. Pick up Friction. I love that book. We got Brainfluence. That's the other book that he wrote that is just, it's chock full of strategies to be persuasive. Or check and out our previous three episodes with Roger Dooley. What was that? Or check out our previous three episodes of uh, Roger true. Dooley. Which weren't, wasn't one mic up in your business. That was our old yeah. entrepreneurship elevator. Yeah. yeah this yeah. is the first time on the new one. Yeah. I think you'd enjoy that. Um, and please do me the favor of rating and reviewing the show. It's the best way for us to get exposure. It really does serve us. So if you would, I'd be honored. And make sure you subscribe. I promise you it's the best way we can serve you so you don't miss a single episode. And uh, any questions you have, email askmike at mikemichalowitz.com. Why not pull up it in your email right now and type in askmike at mikemichalowitz.com and put in that burning business question you have and uh, I'll tack it, tackle it for you personally with Jeremy on our, what we call it, behind... Behind, behind the mic. Behind, behind the, mic. the mic. Yeah. Behind, mic. behind, behind the, the mic. Behind the up in the mic. <laughs> behind mic. Yeah. Behind mic. Behind the behind. Listen to behind mic. <laughs> the hind mic. <laughs> oh, and uh, the URL to rate the podcast is uh, www.ratethispodcast.com slash M-I-Y-B. Got that right. You know what we can do? We should buy a domain that forwards there and make it even easier. We'll make it even easier. Less friction. Rate, mi- rate Mike. Less something. friction. Yes. There uh, we go. All right. It's interstellar.com slash Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy's on a tear. Right. Josh Hartnett. <laughs> Bye. Bye, everybody.